Hey guys, welcome to Self Obsessed. This is your host, Jeff Grace, filmmaker, comedian, and self-help obsessive. This week on the podcast, I have on Michael J. Moon. Michael is one of the most cerebral guys I have spoken with. Guys and girls, girls, women, women and men. Really uh, one of the most cerebral human beings, we'll say, that I've spoken with on the podcast about the personal development space. He started in Silicon Valley in the late 70s. He knew the two Steves, Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak. He was in the Computer Homebrewers Club. So he's OG Silicon Valley. And that's what he does. He's a personal coach for various Silicon entrepreneurs or organizations, startups. If you guys remember the episode we had with Casper from Swipes, um, they were the ones that referred me to Michael, actually. I thought he'd be a good guest, and they weren't wrong. Anyways, Michael and I talk in depth about NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming. And NLP is sort of a form of, I guess, psychotherapy or therapy or... I guess a way of thinking about the mind that started in the 70s and it's the underlying kind of fundamentals behind a lot of the thinking of Tony Robbins, of Landmark. If you guys have ever read the book, The Game, that Neil Strauss wrote about pickup artists, pickup artists use a lot of NLP. So uh, there's a lot of positive and I guess maybe to some extent a lot of, of possible negative that can stem from the use of NLP. But for you listeners at home, you should listen because it is a fundamental shift in thinking about how people use words and language to affect the behavior of others. And so if you don't know about it, you might be manipulated by it. Yeah, that's right. So uh, we'll talk to Michael J. Moon here. If you guys have a second, uh, if you want to pause your podcast or after you're done, always appreciate if you rate, review, comment on iTunes, Stitcher. Apple Podcasts, I guess that's the same thing as iTunes. Google Play, did I mention that one? Always helps us out, helps new listeners find us and keep the podcast growing. Because if you're not growing, you're dying, guys. Anyways, without any further ado, Michael J. Moon. Hey, Michael, thank you for coming on today. Hey, thanks for having me. So, Michael, I, I mean, we talked for a long time yesterday, and I thought we could kind of take our listeners through a little bit of your background. Uh, you're sort of uh, what I call OG late 70s Silicon Valley, sort of the personal computing revolution era. Uh, but I thought maybe we'd start off with just give me, maybe you give us a little bit of your background. Sure. In this space. So, so um, I um, uh, went to junior high school and high school in uh, uh, South San Jose and uh, went to school at UC Santa Cruz and have more or less uh, lived and worked in Silicon Valley uh, uh, for the last, I don't know, 40 or so years. Um, and, uh, uh, one of the things that you had asked me about was um, uh, kind of how my uh, formative years in, in uh, university kind of informed kind of the arc of my life. And uh, in that, I said that I had uh, taken an interdisciplinary degree in religious studies. And uh, I started off um, uh, with the idea, um, somewhat a very 60-ish uh, ideal of uh, contributing to world peace. And uh, my take on that was to uh, have a career in international law or public diplomacy. 
Gotcha. And uh, so, so I said, well, gosh, the traditional path is to go do a history major or poli-sci or, or maybe even an anthropology um, uh, major. Uh, and I said, yeah. Uh, and I had the intuition uh, that if I uh, – that uh, – uh, the fastest way of learning the legal system of a new culture should probably start with their religions and uh, the prevailing religions and the moral imperatives that derive from those religious traditions. Um, and the insight, my insight at the time was that, gosh, uh, those moral imperatives uh, are, are what then gets codified in terms of what's right or wrong, moral or immoral, um, in, in the system of laws. And uh, so uh, I threw myself headlong into the studying of um, world religions, and I came to um, uh, three really kind of startling uh, uh, realizations. One, uh, religion and politics are evil twin sisters. Uh, they're both about the blunt instrument of state power, for the most part. Um, and uh, the only difference is that religion is non-rational. Not to right. say that politics is rational, but religion is like completely off the reservation of uh, logic and rationality. But you, I, I want to just ask you the term rationality. I'm sure a lot of people would bump on that, right? You know, they'd say, what, what do you mean religion is not rational? Or, and you're saying politics is rational. How are you using that term? Is that more of a scientific version of rationality or? More in the historical sense. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, 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 from uh, one of the great German scholars, uh, Max Weber, uh, uh, in his book, Puritan Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism, uh, or the Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism, sorry. Uh, uh, he basically uh, um, uh, uh, frames the question, what was it, what was it to be a, a Greek citizen? What were the moral imperatives to be a Greek citizen? And uh, he essentially claims through some rather dense German language uh, that the gift of the Greeks and the moral imperatives that, that come to us through a Greco-Roman tradition, to be a Greek is to uh, – to be a Greek citizen is to essentially have your house in order, um, uh, oikos, uh, from which we get the notion of economy or ecosystem, uh, plus to have a political philosophy in order so that you can go into the agora. Uh, the town square, the marketplace, uh, and hold forth an intelligent, persuasive argument uh, in terms of how to best run uh, the polos, uh, the city. So um, part of being uh, immersed in this Greco-Roman society of ours um, is this notion to have a coherent worldview and a, a reasoned position in terms of this is better than that in terms of how uh, how best to organize the resources um, of the uh, city the polos are now essentially uh, you know country state city right so when i say a rational point of view it means that you have a point of view uh, that you are aware of having a point of view, uh, and that you've uh, taken some care to develop it such that it's internally consistent and logical, and that it's persuasive, uh, that you can persuade others to see how you see uh, the world and, and have them join you in terms of uh, an agreement or assent in terms of we should do this as opposed to that. So when I say uh, religion is not rational, uh, uh, it is fundamentally uh, based on uh, uh, religion is oftentimes based on ecclesiastical uh, authority 
a, a pope, a cardinal, a bishop saying, you know, uh, uh, water's hard and rocks are wet. And by God, that's what it is. Right. Uh, irres irrespective of any kind of scientific or material fact. Um, so that's why I'm saying religion is. But my point was about studying religion was that uh, the all, the start of all religions, the start of all religions uh, started almost uh, uh, without exception, start with some transcendental vision uh, brought for brought forward by a prophet uh, or a, a saint, a mystic, and through the power of his or her vision and the sway of his or her language, uh, changed the shape of history, uh, the shape and flow of history. So that was one of the things I, I, I came away with was the power of, of uh, a transcendental, transcendental vision to organize uh, the course of history. Uh, the second idea that came out of my early studies was that uh, these mystics, saints, poets, heretics, witch doctors, curandos, uh, essentially spiritual leaders, see uh, what others don't see uh, and do what others say can't be done and persuade us to see and do the unexpected. So they're real iconoclasts, they're real change makers. And so I was fascinated with how they did that and really get my hands in the clay of how did these uh, historical characters affect the kind of massive systemic change that obviously they have. And the third thing that kind of came out of all this was uh, there's a really interesting conversation between uh, these uh, spiritual traditions of personal development and and uh, uh, self-cultivation and uh, what it means to live a, a full and, and rich life. Right. And when you so you study you study the religions as a way to kind of understand our laws and then simultaneously you're kind of dabbling in the I guess this is the late 60s through the 70s sort of the, the, yeah. the prevailing I don't know if you would you call it new age or just the, the prevailing new age. Uh, some of it, some of it, you said was based in sort of the NLP, which I feel like is a lot of times because referred to as New Age. Well, um, it, it's all a matter of context, and right. however, uh, the term New Age is a misnomer. It's a red herring. Um, it's a shiny object that some people chase. It's uh, in stark contrast with the material fact of of uh, the United States and, and specifically uh, California. So. A uh, part of the, uh, when I think about California, there's, there's the physical state of California and right now with all the big fires up in the north and, right. uh, and so on. But there's also this other figurative, uh, imaginative, this narrative called California. So California has always occupied a unique position, uh, or at least for the last 150 years anyway, position in the imagination of America and the world. And uh, while Silicon Valley and Hollywood are two of the uh, most public of those narratives, uh, there's a third narrative uh, that started uh, again uh, with the 49er gold rush and, and then right after the earthquake and all of the spiritualism uh, that was here, Krishnamurti uh, uh, being one example uh, out of Ojai. And Northern California from, from the beats uh, to the hippies uh, to the new agers, Northern California has always had a robust uh, subculture, what one uh, anthropologist calls cultural creatives, individuals who consider it their moral obligation to one pioneer new ways of work, uh, live, working, and playing, and to propagate those new patterns uh, globally. And right. so 
So uh, there's a great series, TV series on Channel 11 called The Revolutionaries. That's the uh, uh, the NBC affiliate here in um, San Jose. And I think you can get it on the web. It's called The Revolutionaries. But it's a wonderful documentary of an, an exploration of how Northern California in particular uh, occupies a, a unique position in the, the historical imagination or the narrative of America. The bottom line is that there has been for many, many years and will continue for the foreseeable future a robust underground or subculture of, for lack of a better term, uh, self-cultivation, personal transformation, uh, spiritual questing, uh, etc., and, and you look at, I mean, I, when you say those things, you know, those are, those are terms that people listening right now are either wincing at, or they're like, yeah, I'm into that, you know? And, and uh, sure. what I'm trying to do on this podcast is, is sort of take some of the negative connotations out of these, some of these things and also probe some of these other things, make sure they're valid and scientific and what have you. A worthwhile endeavor. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. I mean, we've, uh, you know, when we talked yesterday too, we, we, we delved into a little bit of, I know you have a background with EST which has come up a few times in, in previous podcasts and um, yeah. which then turned into it's then that sort of basic concept was then turned into a landmark and uh, which is all kind of rooted in the basics of NLP. You were sort of talking me through yesterday. So landmark is not actually uh, rooted in, in much of any NLP. Gotcha. Uh, landmark well, it was a conception brought forth by a fellow named Werner Erhard, and he kind of stole shamelessly from everyone. Uh, he stole a little bit from Scientology. He stole a little bit from Fritz Perls. Uh, he stole a little bit from uh, Zen Buddhism. Uh, it was really kind of a, a synthesis of uh, or a grab bag of kind of available historical narratives and traditions. And uh, he just did an excellent job of packaging it as almost a, a mainstream consumer experience. Uh, that's and, and by that, I don't mean to in any way deprecate uh, its 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 value, its meaning, its uh, and the tremendous uh, transformation uh, that has uh, that it is for many people who did that. Um, NLP is a, uh, a really a, a, an offshoot of of uh, a completely different uh, branch in the uh, in the tree here. Uh, it's, uh, it's grounded in information theory, uh, and, uh, pragmatics of human communication. A lot of work that came from out of the Mental Research Institute, uh, in Palo Alto and work of Gregory Bateson, uh, with whom I studied in college. Uh, but it was really kind of packaged or organized as a system by Richard Grant, uh, Richard, uh, Richard Grinder, uh, and, uh, uh, Robert uh, Grinder and Bandler, uh, and uh, Richard Bandler, right? And then John Richard Grinder. Bandler, John John Grinder, right? Grinder, and uh, and uh, uh, they took a lot of work um, of, uh, say, for example, Paul Watzlawick and uh, uh, Don Jackson, Gregory Bateson, uh, and those were kind of the uh, uh, the uh, super. Uh, super scholars of the age in terms of really uh, applying uh, uh, mathematical concepts to uh, uh, experience communication. Uh, also draws a lot of work on uh, Milton Erickson, the godfather of clinical hypnosis. 
And so um, NLP is really, if you will, a calculus uh, for modeling uh, subjective experience and, and skills uh, with a goal of being able to break them down into learnable chunks and uh, pass them on to other people. Tony Robbins, on the other hand, basically uh, took um, a lot of the same structures of NLP and said, well, great, how can I affect uh, a third order change, which is to say a change uh, in fundamentally how you believe yourself to be, uh, how you experience and how you uh, interact on an on a unconscious reflexive basis. So uh, you could say that the work of Tony Robbins is really about affecting third order changes at the level of a concept of self or the set of interlocking beliefs uh, that are expressed through unconscious reflective action. Can you, can you talk a little bit about the third order change? What would be like a first order or second order change? And then, and then what, what constitutes a third order change? Sure. A, um, a first order change is essentially uh, just kind of doing, doing something different. I'll have chocolate as opposed to vanilla. Uh, so nothing about the structure of the, of the system or communication changes is just, it just, as I said, just a, a change that, that has little or no difference. Right. Um, a second order change um, is really about a, a change of how you see things. Uh, sometimes you'll hear the term control the narrative. Well, the whole distinction of controlling the narrative presupposes that there is a narrative that, and that one has control over it. And in fact, if you can flip the narrative, um, uh, uh, that's a second order change. The, the material facts don't change but the meaning of them changes. And so a lot of what I'll call uh, high-performance coaches and advisors uh, seek to affect second-order changes with their clients. Uh, Third-order changes, on the other hand, uh, are really about uh, how you make meaning, how we make meaning. And those are, if you will, a product um, of communications and interactions. And so uh, for the most part, a third order change uh, uh, expresses uh, or brings forward the notion of a concept of self. I am that I am this. Uh, third order changes are pretty rare in people's lives. People kind of show up and they kind of go through life, you know, I'm just being me. For some people, uh, having your first child is a third order change. All of a sudden, I'm a dad or I'm a mom. Uh, and fundamentally, your whole world changes around the fact that, that you have this uh, infant now um, uh, upon whose very survival uh, they depend on you. Uh, that's that's kind of an example of a third order change. Yeah, we had uh, Heather Morris from Gleon, and she basically said that her life changed upon having a baby. She pulled herself out of depression and found new, renewed purpose in her life. And I, it sounds like that's exactly what happened to her. And um, right. I suspect like a you know a rock bottom for an alcoholic might be something that would constitute a third order change. Well, that's right. Uh, for the most part, uh, so this gets back to kind of an underlying theory of change and, uh, and learning. We learn through uh, one of four modalities, uh, frequency, duration, intensity, and personal identification, uh, meaningfulness or salience. Right. Uh, so that if I'm exposed to something every day for five minutes for 20 years, uh, we'll have the same net effect as if I've sat with this intensely for three weeks, 24 by seven, uh, or if I am put into a, uh, a tremendous life altering challenge, you know, a near death experience, uh, they'll have the effect, they'll, they'll have 
the same measure of change. It's just whether it's uh, low intensity, high frequency, long duration, immersion, uh, something that is intense, uh, life-threatening, uh, or something that's personally meaningful. And uh, uh, these all go into uh, what an NLP would call reference experiences. And so in the hands of an NLP practitioner, Tony Robbins being a good example, is the creation of reference experiences uh, that fundamentally change your your point of reference, your concept of self. So that would be an example of a third order change. Now, most third order changes are usually a function of trauma. <laughs> uh, uh, they are usually intense and unpleasant. Uh, however, uh, personal transformations along the spiritual path are uh, intentional uh, and often sought after. Uh, and uh, uh, they have this, the same net effect of fundamentally changing who I am and how I relate to the world. Are there, could you have examples of third order changes that happen from long duration, high frequency, or, you know, something that's not an, an, an intense traumatic event, but just maybe a, I don't know, maybe one day you open the Holy Bible and then seven years later, you're a devout Christian, but it didn't happen all at once. Is that a third order change or is that something different? Um, that's a little different. Gosh, I'm, I'm looking for an example of a, of a, a third order change. And so, um, uh, what I'm about to share with you is kind of a um, somewhat of a personal, I might even say embarrassing anecdote, but it is nonetheless true and demonstrative of what you're asking for. So um, uh, I've been married three times and, uh, and, uh, and I could say uh, uh, this is kind of my life and a three act, a three act play of relationship. And right. For men, for many of us, our first act of relationship is uh, what a colleague and former partner of mine, Larry Byram, calls a, a, a chemically induced crash and burn high torque entanglements. You know, that's <laughs> we just chase the chemistry. After so many of these crash and burn entanglements, we go, "Oh my God, that really hurts." Uh, I want to be related, but I don't want the pain. Uh, so, so that starts to affect uh, a second order change, <laughs> uh, which is to say, I am now going to get smart about uh, about who I'm going to chase and who's and who I'm going to be allowed to be found by. So, uh, typically, we make a list, a list of the things I like and the things I don't like about her. Uh, and conversely, uh, if I'm uh, at all uh, self aware, I'm making a list of the, of my strengths and my weaknesses. And invariably, what we find um, is that uh, uh, in making this T-chart, kind of an accounting of debit and credit metaphor, in making mm -hmm. this T-chart of strengths and weaknesses, I typically am sorting for somebody who's going to complete me, somebody who's strong in my areas of, of weakness and vice versa. And, uh, and that produces um, uh, what Larry would call a... a uh, a negotiated status quo, no growth contract, a deal. And that's most of what goes on for relationships today. It's the deal. You do this, I do that, together, you know, we're good. Um, and the deal is really about uh, security. Um, uh, and the deal is about if I give up this, then you give up that. So you could say the deal is an agreement to be compromised uh, for the sake of security. So long as nobody grows, uh, the deal's fine. But of course, we're human. Uh, we're in constant interaction and communication with our environment or with others, and we do grow. Uh, and we tend to grow in our areas of weakness. 
And when we do that, uh, our partner starts feeling not loved. A power struggle often begins. And uh, without going through all of that. It's sort of like if you always hear if someone, if someone in a relationship loses a lot of weight, it's often at risk of the relationship because the other person yeah. will either feel rejected or feel like they're not good enough or it, oh, it creates a power shift in the, in the relationship. Yeah, but, um, and we are complicit in this status quo, no growth contract because we seek to get something from the relationship as opposed to primarily the relationship exists primarily to express. Hmm. Uh, and to the extent that you have a need, to the extent that you got a hand in the cookie jar, um, you're going to get whacked. And so I remember uh, I made a detailed list of uh, what I wanted in a, in a wife and a partner and and uh, I went through uh, about four months of these personal ads, you know, in the free uh, weekly newspaper uh, things. And, uh, you know, a thousand attributes layer uh, in three columns. So I finally come up. Here's the <laughs> definitive things. I'm looking for her here the, in the middle column is here's the stuff that we want to do together. And, and uh, the third column is here's the stuff that I'm bringing to it. And so I completely went over the top in terms of uh, developing a comprehensive list of things I wanted to get and, and what I was willing to give in order to get those things. Uh, with, uh, with absolute earnestness and complete naivete in terms of the shithouse that that would throw me into. <laughs> well, why, I mean, that doesn't sound like such an imprudent way of going about it. What, what was, why would that throw one into a shithouse? Uh, 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 without going into the into the uh, agonizing, uh, humiliating experience of, of uh, this rather short-lived marriage, I found myself uh, in a workshop led by my my friend and partner Larry. And as I begin to really experience uh, what a whole relationship was uh, could be, I discovered that uh, the relationship that I had with my uh, soon-to-be-divorced wife who had just a couple of days before announced that she was divorcing me. Uh, I was literally writhing on the floor, uh, sobbing uh, uncontrollably. Uh, uh, and as I laid there uh, uh, and these waves of tears would just kind of rip through me. Uh, and after uh, some amount of time, <laughs> 10 minutes, hour, something, uh, after uh, I began to get meta. I began to observe myself uh, being uh, wrung through the uh, 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 the washer, uh, and uh, and I began to notice that uh, at preceding each wave of tears and moans was the sudden recognition that uh, a particular need uh, that my then wife was fulfilling was no longer going to be fulfilled. Was, was, and I experienced myself as an addict, a junkie. And I was literally witnessing the deprogramming the or the defusing uh, or the un uncoupling um, of the IV drip uh, that I had had in this relationship. And uh, I was uh, astounded with the fact that it was, it was almost at the level of scary, uh, scariness of the matrix of discovering that I am not who I think I am <laughs> and that uh, and that uh, that everything that I was mourning was in fact 
unhealthy. Everything uh, that precipitated a wave of sadness uh, was in fact uh, a micro addiction. Hmm. And uh, I kept releasing, I kept crying, I kept, and, and at some point uh, I was just empty, raw, vulnerable, empty, and free. And so that was an, ex and so this resulted in, in uh, uh, the fundamental change in terms of, of who I was going to be in relationship, which is to say, I'm swearing off chemistry. Anytime I got a hubba hubba going on, uh, exit stage left. <laughs> uh, and this led to um, a very interesting period in life when I was more or less celibate for, I don't know, uh, some number of years. Uh, and uh, where I would simply observe that, yes, I have these chemical reactions. Uh, yes, I have these uh, quote unquote psychological needs that heretofore I would have sought to have someone else fulfill. And I went, nope, you're going to learn to stand on your own two feet on this, uh, which leads to kind of the third order kind of relationship, um, a, uh, a term that Gary Zukoff many years ago in his book, See of the Soul, called a, a spiritual partnership, a relationship dedicated to the personal growth and creative expression of your partner. Hmm. Um, now, there are some conditions in this. Uh, one is, I don't need anything from you. I'm coming into this relationship more or less complete. I got my I got my stuff taken care of. I'm here primarily to help or to facilitate you on uh, expressing whatever it is uh, that uh, wants to move through you. Uh, so this is not about need fulfillment. It's just the opposite. It's about uh, an unconditional acceptance of another person, and, and against that. I've got, you know, I'd have 40 or 50 years of yeah, buts arguments um, about the unconditional acceptance of anything, starting with my mother. But <laughs> the point was, uh, that was simply grist for the mill. That was, that was no longer, that was no longer who I am, but it was just, you know, okay, I got a kink there. Okay. And there would be relative degrees of awareness around, well, do I own it? Um, I'm going to take care of it. Am I going to uh, abide by it, accept it? Uh, am I going to heal it or am I going to pr protest it some more? <laughs> the direction, uh, the trajectory, the velocity, you know, the trajectory of it was set. I'm healing the motherfucker. Uh, <laughs> it was just a matter of when, not if. And let me ask you some questions here. So the, you know, the hubba hubba, I mean, that's probably why 99% of everyone gets involved in a relationship as I, at least people I know, there's a, there's a absolutely attraction. There's a, or there's, it's maybe, it may not be immediate. It might be someone you get attracted to after getting to know them better. But, um, the, what it sounds like you're fine. You found is something akin to like an unconditional love or, or, or the idea that I'm going to love this person without getting anything in return. That will be enough for me. I don't know if that's, if I'm speaking, try to understand a little bit more though. It's like this third relationship and how you, how you found this one person that you decided this is the one. Yeah. So, uh, and, and so I did find someone like that and, and I'm now, you know, uh, 17, 18 years into that marriage. Uh, and it has been um, a journey of transformation. Uh, the first 10 years of which were just pure hell. <laughs> of this relationship. Uh, yeah, sure. So this was, it was not all peaches and cream, if you will. It was not all honey and milk or whatever the metaphor of pleasant sweetness is. 
but it had um, dignity and meaning and purpose and value beyond just, you know, surviving another day. But the question that you're asking is, yes, most people do go into the world seeking to have their needs met. Uh, and it leads to uh, a certain set of experiences, uh, experiences that almost always end up uh, less than it could be. And at some point, just like um, uh, an addict, at some point, you hit rock bottom and say, no more. It sounds like you're, almost like a codependency cycle is what you're talking about to some extent. Uh, sure. Uh, and is that a term that you would use or no? Or no? Um, uh, I have a uh, somewhat um, of a running argument with psychotherapy uh, as a domain, uh, as a discipline. Uh, psychotherapy, to my best, uh, to my best effort to understand it, uh, is a system of physician-caused disease. Uh, the technical term is iatrogenesis, but fundamentally, psychology is rooted in pathology diagnostic uh, disease, uh, and that in order for a therapist to do much of anything with a patient, uh, the therapist must first of all diagnose you, uh, thereby giving you linguistically uh, a symptom, an illness that now uh, suits his or her tool set of therapy, therapeutic interventions, by which to give you relief and perhaps never any cure. So no, I I I, uh, I have a a, a profound uh, disagreement uh, with the precepts uh, of psychotherapy. And if you get me going, I'm going to say that it's the uh, voodoo of the 20th century and has caused more disease than the Third Reich. I'm a, I I have had my own experiences in psychology. Some good, some bad. The bad being, you know, talk talk a little longer for 45 minutes at you know 200 dollars an hour. Right, and you're not really you're not really trying to tap you're not trying to solve anything. I've had I think more recently maybe there's been some upgrades to the firmware. I don't know, yeah. but yeah, it does seem like uh, there's a commonality. I know that my research of NLP, you see a lot of criticism from conventional psychology of it, and vice versa. Well, sure, Scientology uh, obviously has gone full. Yeah. <laughs> Scientology built a museum about the terror of, or I can't remember what it's called here in Los Angeles, but it's like the Museum of psychological or, or the Museum of Horror of psychology or something like that. Sure. Um, so NLP NLP had had a longstanding, uh, I won't say war, but uh, uh, argument uh, with traditional psychotherapy, and it just reflects that uh, NLP is uh, more grounded in observable behavior uh, and modelable and modelable. Um, patterns of communication and interaction. And uh, psychology, uh, as given to us by the charlatan, great charlatan Freud, uh, is all about these, uh, you know, psychic, inter interpsychic motives. And, uh, you know, <laughs> there's a great riff. There's a great riff. Um, uh, Tom Hartman, uh, he was on C SPAN TV a while ago. He has uh, this, uh, uh, television show on uh, Link TV. He talks about the history of psychotherapy and how um, uh, Freud had a very successful career uh, treating young women uh, as he first started his thing in Vienna uh, using essentially hypnosis. And then it was called mesmerism. And he was having these remarkable cure rates as a function of uh, mesmerism, which you would call proto-NLP. 
mesmerism and hypnosis is really kind of uh, the prototype uh, or the, the generative, uh, the grandfather of NLP. Um, and then came along uh, after he's in his uh, career of five, six years or something, uh, one of the top bestsellers of the book, a be top, top bestseller nonfiction book. I can't remember the name of it, but it was like Harry Potter successful uh, book. Mm. Uh, and it was about this evil character named Svengali, who had used mesmerism to put young women under his spell and to have his way with them. And it was so scandalous that all practitioners um, of mesmerism and hypnosis were essentially run out of the market. No one, uh, it was just like all of a sudden they were just, you know, uh, had the mark of the devil on them. And so in the, middle, the original, the original heavy metal yeah. hysteria. Oh, actually it was beyond that. It was uh, uh, something far more instinctual, something far more horrific than that. Hmm. And so in the middle of this, Freud had to kind of reinvent his business model. And out of that came uh, what we know now as the Freudian psychology, uh, which was an attempt to get back to what he found worked uh, uh, with mesmerism, uh, but com completely disassociating himself from the mechanics of how people experience uh, uh, subjective experience. And so, uh, so that's why I call him a charlatan. I just, it's, I... Uh, a sad history. We're going to look back on this a couple hundred years ago and go, my God, the lead pipes of the 20th century was Freudianism. Is this, I mean, this seems akin to sort of the arguments a lot of people make of, you know, Western medicine versus Eastern medicine. Medicine. I mean, do you think that we're going through a shift of, it does seem to be becoming more and more mainstream to criticize what I guess I would call mainstream psychology. Sure. And, and, and the nail on that, uh, the last nail on that coffin will be the, mo the some of the more recent developments in neuroscience and more specifically in neurocomputational imaging of the brain. So think of neurocomputational imaging of the brain is uh, uh, having hundreds of sensors around your brain and through magnetic resonance imaging and other uh, scanning technologies, being able to observe your brain operating in real time uh, as it constructs and makes meaning of experiences. And so as we start to then develop hard data sets, hard science data sets around how the brain works at a mechanical, at a electrochemical level. Uh, and as we, as we see uh, 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 in data, uh, how the brain manufactures subjective experience and interpretation. Uh, you're going to tear out huge of, of sections, entire sections of standard issue psychology as voodoo, uh, voodoo science. It just, it just, the data contradicts it X, Y, and Z. Uh, so we're on the cusp right now of being able to uh, see how it is uh, that we cognitively make sense of the world. And, uh, and as we do this, we will start creating a closed loop feedback system. So we'll be able to see cause effect and separate that from mere correlation. And as we begin to- I, I've done some of this. Uh, yeah. Having been diagnosed with ADHD, I, I went through a trial of this kind of- mm -hmm. Basically, you can you kind of can see your brain visualize on a computer screen, and then you can concentrate to sort of focus yourself. And in uh -huh. you know, it's only a trial, but you could see how doing this for a long period of time, you could actually learn 
it's similar to a meditation device that's commonly available. I'll have to post it in the show notes. I'll have to find it. But where you, it, it kind of can, I mean, I know this is a, the least sophisticated version of what you're talking about, but it's sort of a feedback loop to say, oh, I can actually control this chaotic state yeah. of mind and, 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 and get a calmer, more focused state of mind. Yeah. Uh, reminds me, of, um, I had um, uh, studied with this fellow named Jack Schwartz, and uh, he was famous for uh, conscious control of autonomic states. Uh, like body temperature and uh, uh, capillary action uh, and so on. Uh, in particular, uh, he was, uh, uh, if you were to think about it in Eastern terms, uh, he was a guru. Uh, he was a fakir. Uh, he was a master of of uh, his uh, his biology and his neurology. And uh, it was his central claim uh, that through meditation, uh, and through act, what he called active meditation, uh, one could become not only aware of, uh, but be able to direct, uh, heretofore unconscious autonomic processes like, uh, pulse rate, uh, uh temperature, the, uh, action of capillaries and the ability to self-suture a wound. Uh, really w just wacky, wild stuff. And um, one of the things that he uh, did in the 60s, uh, this was been in the early 60s at UC uh, Medical Center here in San Francisco, UCSF. And uh, this was back when, you know, Ken, uh, Ken Kesey and, and, uh, and uh, uh, what was it, William Leary uh, were doing mm -hmm. LSD, sanctioned LSD experiences. This is, you know, 64, 65. Uh, Jack related the story how he was, uh, part of the Langley Porter Institute for the research of all this. And they have Marines, U.S. Marines come in. And this is all part of this MK Ultra thing about using oh, yeah. uh, psychic powers for, you know, war purposes. And uh, so we talk about uh, taking these Marines and putting them into sensory deprivation tanks. These high sailing water, completely dark uh, uh, sensory deprivation tanks with noise suppression, kind of like anechoic chambers and stuff. And how these Marines would report seeing things uh, uh, in an environment that clearly had no photons in them. Uh, and some of the Marines would kind of leap out, kind of like completely, you know, berserk in terms of being chased by these phantoms and so on. And so being scientists, they said, hmm, this is interesting. And through a series of experiments, uh, they started saying, well, how about if we go into this, these, uh, uh, sensory deprivation tanks, but train people to control their biofeedback, you know, alpha brainwave states, beta brainwave states, and so on. And as they sent trained meditators into these meditation states, these meditators uh, reported back seeing these very, very structured uh, geometric uh, lattices or matrices in their field of vision. And they said, hmm. And one of the things they found was that people that were able to generate Theta brain wave states. Now, theta brain waves are in, I think, about four to eight uh, cycles per second. So it's relatively slow. Uh, and it's a brain wave state associated with creative problem solving, reverie, creation, and kind of just uh, childlike improvisation. Hmm. Uh, so you could say that theta brain, and it was Jack's central claim uh, that uh, the, the ability to create and maintain theta brainwave states was the ability to kind of become almost superhuman. Uh, 
to be able to access parts of your uh, physiology and neurology that weren't available to you. And as they sent trained uh, people trained in uh, theta brainwaves into the sensory deprivation tank, a very distinct geometric pattern began to emerge. Purples and yellows and oranges and blues and pinks and so on. And as they had then a sketch artist come and draw them out, uh, they were consistent from one subject to the next. And then somebody says, gosh, I've seen those patterns before. Uh, and uh, he said, well, where have we seen those? But he said, and then all of a sudden, kind of like, oh, my God, that's the very pattern in this Tibetan Tonka. Now, a Tibetan Tonka is a, like a drawing, a painting that has these geometric shapes. Uh, that Tibetan monks have around them upon which they meditate. And it turned out that this hmm. Tibetan tanka with this particular matrix was about inducing through entrainment, another funny term, uh, inducing through entrainment theta brainwave states by which to, quote unquote, transverse the universe. So what we have now is kind of the foundation of material, materialistic, rational materialistic science being able to document uh, that the brain, in particular brainwave states, generates particular matrices uh, that, uh, uh, that are oftentimes represented in things that we find beautiful. So the pursuit of beauty uh, in the sense of uh, art and music oftentimes is at its root, uh, closing a, a, a circuit within us uh, for the sublime, the transcendental the who I am beyond just the temporal, the temporal concerns of survival and death. Well, there's similarities between this, some of this you're describing. I've had a few experiences with psychedelic, psychedelic mushrooms over the years. And during a mushroom trip, I mean, you'll see geometric, geometric patterns everywhere. I remember one distinct thing was I looked up into the starry sky of Joshua Tree and saw everywhere I saw the perfect formation of an eagle head in all the different stars. And I, I, yeah. it sounds a little reminiscent of, are these just different ways to get to that theta brainwave state? Or? Yeah. In, in my point here, though, uh, uh, Jeff, is that um, uh, we're witnessing this convergence of what we'll call kind of the hard science of data and, and the scientific method and, and uh, repeatable uh, uh, process, repeatable processes that produce predictable results. You know, the scientific, we're seeing the convergence of the scientific method, uh, with these things that heretofore have been kind of, uh, uh, wildly subjective, bordering on hallucin, uh, on hallucination of what I'll call the, uh, the sublime, the transcendent. And, and, uh, it's my mm, conviction uh, that neurocomputational imaging will finally generate uh, the core data sets by which to substantiate uh, uh, what mystics, saints, poets, and heretics have been saying uh, since the beginning of time. It's interesting. I'm, I'm, I think we're both fans of some, some of the thinkers in what's been called the intellectual dark web, which is a terrible name for an otherwise fairly interesting group of thinkers like Sam Harris, Jordan Peterson. And, and there seems to be this real debate between the new atheists, Sam Harris's or the Richard Dawkins of the world, and then these people like um, Jordan Peterson or Brett Weinstein recently had a debate with uh, Dawkins. Yeah. And it sort of seems like at the core of it is there's this sort of uh, debate about what can science solve, what can religion solve. And perhaps religion is an adaptive feature of our evolution that's 
sort of, you know, might actually be more, imp- it, it might not be just complete or there might be something about it that's rooted in biology more than we, we might know. Sure. Um, well, first of all, uh, first of all, I, as we, as we begin to k- get close to the end of our hour here, I'd like to uh, conclude on a story uh, that then becomes a coda for our next conversation. So, yeah, sounds great. Uh, so uh, I was uh, a, a great fan of a, of this uh, fellow named Robert Monroe. Robert Monroe wrote the book uh, Journeys Out of the Body uh, and then two subsequent books called Far Journeys and then Ultimate Journey. And it was, he was just kind of a, a guy in Virginia someplace, an engineer by training who started having these out of body experiences. And unlike most crazy uh, people that were completely flipped out by this, he just started taking as a good engineer, uh, started writing uh, basically uh, down his journal. Uh, of what he was experiencing. And uh, we'll, we'll save it another day in terms of kind of my take in terms of what uh, he reports. You can all find it in his books uh, or his, mm-hmm. um, his uh, CD program called The Gateway Experience in which you can train yourself to have an out-of-body experience and uh, flip the, uh, and, uh, flip the uh, light fantastics, if you will. Uh, but I remember uh, uh, meeting him. I was at a uh, an event um, put on by Eslon uh, in 1977 ish, ish, maybe six, 76, 77. Uh, and it was in uh, San Francisco at the Unitarian Church at the corner of Geary and Goff. And uh, it's this really interesting little cement building. Um, but you know, it's the Unitarian Church. And he was there uh, giving a talk on to enroll people in his two week gateway experience that he was doing with Eslon. And um, one of the what, things. What is Eslon? Eslon, uh, Eslon is one of the granddaddies uh, of uh, kind of what you call the New Age human potential movement. Uh, it's rooted down in Big Sur. It's been there since uh, the 60s. And kind of who's who and kind of the transformation business has done something at Eslon. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just, it's just kind of the granddaddy of this whole thing, uh, founded by a guy named Mike Murphy. But uh, uh, there I met Robert Monroe, and I was in my late 20s at the time. And he was in his late sixties and, and, uh, he was talking about, you know, traveling out of your body and learning how to do this as a function of a conscious, uh, learnable skill. And, uh, I was fascinated with this, and, you know, because it fit my whole, you know, narrative on, uh, you know, uh, spirituality in the 20, in the 20th century. And uh, someone asked him, says, are there any people that are, that are especially well suited for having to travel about it? He says, well, yes, I'm really looking for scientists, people who, when they go out and they run across an archangel or they meet Jesus or they meet the Buddha, uh, they don't give up the ghost and just simply want to go hang out and do their satsang with them. You know, these new agers, they're completely useless. And I get no return on any of the time I've invested. I really want to create a body of scientists who will go out and collect uh, uh, you know, the best, um, best uncluttered data as possible. And I went, well, oh, that's interesting. Uh, and so in his book, he talks about these encounters with these various kind of beings and so on. And this old woman, this uh, old Jewish woman, you know, all five foot one of her, and, you know, uh, uh, hunched over and, you know, the funny, the funny hair and everything. And she says, Mr. Monroe, have you met God? And, uh, and the question kind of uh, startles him a little bit and he says, well, let me answer it this way. Uh, have I met the character 
who to whom a lot millions and millions of people pray every day. Yes, I have. And he's not all that he's cracked up to be. He's just a big blowhard that blows you into a million pieces. What does that mean? I mean, that seems very vague. Uh, so there is this old angry guy called Yahweh who throws lightning bolts uh, and is uh, demanding and angry and upset and punishing and all that kind of stuff, right? Right. Yeah, I met the guy. You know, he's a big blowhard. <laughs> now, if you're asking, uh, have I had a direct experience of the underlying intelligence of the uh, of all the universes? And at this point, he begins to um, talk in very measured uh, in a measured way, and uh, this vein on his forehead begins to bulge, and he begins to flush a little bit like uh, red going to purple. And he said, and he kind of stumbled like this, and he went, "Well, uh, if I were to remember the recollection." of remembering what I was once in the, in the presence of, I would not only break down and weep, I would weep for another three weeks uh, over the sadness of what I am no longer in the presence of. Someday, someday I will get that down on paper, I promise. Now, he fulfills that promise in his book, Ultimate Journeys. Uh, so... Back when you and I were talking about, you know, do you believe in God? And I kind of uh, busted your chops around you know, your misuse of the term belief. Uh, right. Uh, I believe, uh, 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 and I hold it's true, uh, that we learn through experience. And either in, and as Jimi uh, Hendrix kind of asked the question, are you experienced? And either you are or you're not. Uh, and there's no amount of storytelling. There's no amount of information uh, that can convince you of something for which you have no experiential basis. So the job, it seems to me, uh, and this is what we can pick up in terms of a life well lived, is uh, what is the business of having uh, experiences that make a, make a life not only worthwhile, but make it worth examining? Well, you've left me and I think the listeners a lot to think about, Michael. Uh, I know we're at the end of our hour here. Um, yeah, let's resume this conversation. And uh, yeah, this is a lot to think about. Cool. <laughs> We've we covered a lot of ground in a short period of time here, my friend. All right. Well, thanks for bearing through those technical difficulties. And uh, I know you got a call here in a second. So uh, thank you so much for having me on. And, uh, and for those of you who are still listening, thank you for uh, hanging in there. I know this is uh, 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 perhaps a little challenging sometimes. Yeah, it's a little dense, but I think I think there are uh, people are in for that. So I uh, appreciate it, Michael. Have a happy Thanksgiving. Bye.